The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. Tonight on Fast, a SPAC attack. Lucid Motors, the latest name to jump on a special purpose bandwagon, but has all the opportunity in the stock already come and gone. We'll get some answers. Plus, is the dollar going digital? What the Federal Reserve chairman said today, that could mean a lot for the crypto world. And we're all over the After Hours Action Square, and Toll Brothers will dive into the numbers that got these stocks moving after the close. But we start off tonight with... A massive market reversal, the Nasdaq rebounding from a nearly 4% drop in the first hour of trading to end the day basically flat. The S&P and Dow actually managing to eke out gains after seeing some pretty big losses themselves. Take a look at some of the specific moves. Apple down as much as 6%, closing flat. Alphabet went from a 3% loss to a gain to end the day. And Facebook down 2% early trade, finishing the day up 2%. So is this a big case of buy the dip? Is that still alive? Guy Dami. Certainly feels that way. Friday night we had on our special 6 p.m. show, we had the great Cassius Cuvay on, if you recall, mm -hmm. who did that uh, rap about SPACs. Well, I think he's doing a rap about buying the dip, and he nailed it today. Um, and it certainly feels that way. Listen, Apple traded 150 million shares-ish, typically trades about 100. It would have been nice if it got down to that September low, about 110, got down to 118. So peak to trough decline of 17%. <laughs> is typically right in the wheelhouse of what Apple does. So that certainly feels that way. And again, I said it last night, but it's worth mentioning today. When Amazon reported in early February, you know, I thought it would trade up to 3,500. It did not. Steve thought it could trade down to 3,100. Look at today's low and look at the reversal there. So if you're looking for entry points, if you've been sitting on the sidelines, I think in both Apple and Amazon and a number of other names that we'll talk about, it, it's probably as good as it's going to get in the short term. Mm -hmm. The volume was a good sign, Karen. Um, but what do you make of this reversal? Are we just staving off the inevitable in terms of the impact of higher rates on higher valuation stocks? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was very surprised at this reversal because, I mean, this just seemed like a little blip if you step back and see how far things have come, particularly the high flyers. So I don't know what it was exactly that turned it around. I don't know whether it was Powell. I don't know whether it was the J&J &J vaccine dose news. I don't, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm surprised because to me it was just a little bit of foreshadowing, right? I think we'll find ourselves here in the not too distant future of inflation really picking up, the reopening trade happening, and then this, this issue with rates and high flying multiples needing to come down. Uh, just as a matter of math and as a matter of investors switching out of those into more industrials and more sort of retail and reopen trades. Uh, so I'm kind of surprised, to be honest. I, I did a little bit of buying today. Uh, I mean, FedEx at one point was down nine dollars, which was just ridiculous for no news. It's not like it's a high flyer 
at all. I bought some more of that. I bought a little bit more of Weight Watchers, which is going to report Thursday. I didn't buy any Home Depot. It was down a lot at one point. It closed down a fair amount. I didn't do any other buying. Amazon one's sort of on my list. I never really bought enough, but I don't know if it's cheap enough here. I'm not sure. But um, it, this and the bounce back happened so quickly. Uh, I wasn't going to chase things. Steve, was there anything in your mind that sort of uh, was behind this reversal? I mean, I think a lot of it had to do with technicals and a lot of it had to do with the 10 year. If you see the 10 year uh, yields came in a little bit exactly when the market ran. But if you look at uh, what did run, what's odd to me, Melissa, is that we we as the market keep buying the same six names. So we always think it's a buying opportunity. So when Amazon sells off, Tesla sells off, Facebook sells off, Apple sells off, we rush in and buy them. Now, today, I, I could look at these things and I could call Apple a value play, Google a value play. I don't know if I can call Tesla a value play. It's a momentum play, growth play. And to everything that Karen just said, uh, when you discount future earnings aggressively as rates go higher, these things are not where you want to be. And that's why you want to rotate out of tech names and move into value. But as I've said before, Everyone knows what Tesla is. Everyone knows what Facebook is. No one knows what value is. So they continue to do the same thing over and over again. They get a sell-off. So uh, to your question, I think people are going to get beat over the head buying growth one too many times. Mm -hmm. Value looks to me to outperform. Or it could be where, you know, we, the market, buying the same six names because we, the market, are operating in ETFs, Tim. <laughs> I mean, they are very different animals, these top six stocks, but yet they trade so closely together. And to me, that, that's a sign of how we trade right now um, as investors. And that is a lot of ETFs, a lot of baskets of stocks. Yeah, it makes me want to sing We Are the World for some <laughs> reason. Um, but but we, we have a case here where uh, we, as in the S&P, uh, have been outperforming the triple Qs over the last seven days by about three and a half percent. Remember that that move in September? And I think it's always instructive to think about other moments where we feel like we've seen the last of the of the go-go run for mega cap tech. That was about a 5.2 percent pullback over over a couple weeks. But but, you know, the, the moves have been quietly extraordinary over the last few days or actually three weeks. I mean, the move uh, in Apple from Jan 25 to the intraday lows today was almost 19 percent. The mm -hmm. move in September from a wicked blow off top was about 25 percent. Uh, the relative underperformance of Apple to the S&P then was about 15 percent. And it's been uh, it's getting close to that here. So where do you step in and buy? And, and I, I just think that the psychology of the market is still wanting to find uh, or at least be driven by horses that continue to to be names you can sleep with at night. And there's nothing about Apple uh, and Google, uh, for example, the two names we've talked about that that I think has changed. And, and even in a higher rate environment, they're not the stocks that are really have the bullseye on their back. So um, I, I think the, the, the last week or so with the rate move higher, Steve was right to point out the relief that's coming for equity investors here, even though uh, get us to 160 on the 10 year. And, and then I'll start to worry about how much we overshoot that level. But in the meantime, mm -hmm. we've seen this before. Stimulus is coming, presumably. Right, Guy? I mean, things should be improving in the economy. And so while we see prices go higher, theoretically, the E and PE should also expand as the economy picks up. So shouldn't we account? I mean, I understand that rates are going higher as well, and, and that's 
a, a dampening impact. Um, but all in all, I mean, isn't this a good sign? And so therefore, should we really be concerned about the valuations of an Apple, which, uh, you know, has pretty steady earnings of, uh, of a Alphabet, for instance? Um, names that, as Tim had mentioned, you can go to sleep at night owning. No, those are, I think, but I think you would, you would agree. I know Karen and Tim and Steve feel this way as well. Those names specifically, I don't think valuation is that much of a concern. Um, I mean, maybe a tad more than they've traded historically, specifically Apple, but not out of the realm of normalcy in terms of what we've seen. It's some of these other high-flying tech names that we don't often talk about is where you need to be concerned. And maybe some of these names that find themselves in the Russell where you need to be concerned. And at a certain point, I think Tim just hit the nail on the head, you know, one and a half in a 10-year is sort of the line in the sand. We get up to 1.6%, and those tailwinds at higher rates bring, I think, will become headwinds. And I think that's when you have to be concerned, because then, to Karen's earlier point, then you're going to have to start to look at multiples through a lot different, through a much different lens. We looked at them literally over the last 12 years. Yeah. Um, let's get to Tesla here. Steve had mentioned this, and that was one stock that was caught up in today's reversal. ARK Invest's Kathy Wood says her firm... She told Bloomberg Radio this, bought, quote unquote, a lot of Tesla today. We don't know how much Tesla. Um, but, but, Tim, we were talking on the earlier call today about the strange, yeah. uh, you know, tick in Tesla along with heavy volume at a certain level. Yeah, so, so with ETFs also, as someone that manages an ETF, I mean, there, there's times during the day when, when effectively the, the market makers in, in the ETF are in creating uh, new ETFs or there are redemptions or creates. And the, this, this creates extraordinary moves sometimes in underlying stocks. And Tesla, I believe, is around a 10% position uh, in the ARKK. So uh, around 9.50 this morning, we, we actually saw really the bottom for Tesla at around 6.19, 6.20, which amazingly is right at the 100-day average. A 100-day average, by the way, that Tesla has only traded through twice, really since it was a $50 stock. And I know that seems extraordinary. And again, that was really just during the period of, of the wipeout of, of the pandemic through kind of mid to late March. But largely, that move in this stock tells you just how extraordinary, almost 32% over, over you know, off the top and, I don't know, close to 20% in two days to that intraday low. Um, rallied up almost 13%, but, but by 10.30, 10.45, 11 a.m., the stock was largely back to where it closed with some relative moves from there intraday. But um, what a wild ride. I guess that seems almost uh, redundant to, to say with, with Tesla. Um, but the fact that she was back in buying, um, we know she's had a great call on the stock. So I'll let others decide on that. Yeah. And the stock is uh, moving in response to that headline that she bought a lot of Tesla. The stock's up 2% after hours. Um, Karen, what did you make um, of this? It's kind of peculiar. 100-day moving average precisely. Mm -hmm. Right. And the $100 billion change in the market cap during the day, that, that's kind of amazing to me on no fundamental <laughs> news as far as I can tell. Um, you know, that just sort of, eh, I, it, it really adds to the casino-like feel of the market right now, right? The correlation among things that you talked about that re aren't, aren't really shouldn't be correlated in terms of what their businesses are. And yet, as stocks, they are very correlated. So, you know, uh, in our midday call, we also talked about the VIX, which even when the market was down a lot, I was surprised the VIX wasn't higher. And actually, I think, did it close the day maybe a little bit lower? That's sort of amazing to me because it does feel like, I don't know, it feels frothy for sure. 
And so I think, as I said before, I think this was just a foreshadowing of, of a, a, a sell-off that we'll see, which won't be a big deal. We've seen a number of them. We've seen it a bunch of times. It happens. A lot of times it's healthy. But I feel like this little blip was not enough to sort of clear the air at all. Yeah. Um, Guy, what Tim said about the 100-day moving average, it seems to me now that's a level you trade against. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Oh, my God. It's as if you've been doing this show with <laughs> like us for forever. many, many years. Because that's, that's, that's like a line right out of my... And we're <laughs> going to have the great Carter Braxton worth on, I believe, in a few minutes. And what he will tell you is it traded to the penny as he likes to say on the great show Options Action. <laughs> I think that's exactly right. It's giving you an opportunity to trade against something on a big volume day. And now, obviously, you have the headlines from Kathy Wood. So, again, it gives you something, gives you a line in the sand. At least you know where your potential out is on the downside, which as a trader is a wonderful thing to know. All right. Well, as the market was fighting to recoup losses, hashtag buy the dip was actually trending on Twitter. So we thought we'd ask the chart master what names might be worth buying on the dip. Let's bring in Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth to chart it out. Carter, what are you looking at? Well, certainly we just found out that uh, the most important and biggest holder of Tesla did just that. In any event, clearly uh, that very popular thing on Twitter uh, indeed is what happened today. And I thought we'd look at a few charts on the market. And then I've got a couple stocks where I think the weakness is an opportunity versus a problem. So just uh, first, a slide. Uh, we've had seven dips, if you will, since the March low, right? The median and mean, uh, almost the same. Again, 7.2% median decline, 7.07% uh, average decline. Uh, so here is a, a chart. Uh, these are the dips. You can see them there. Uh, they've been quite regular. And again, whether one calls it a dip or a correction or a pullback or a sell-off or a decline, uh, in the etymology of correction, it implies that it makes it better. Something's incorrect, how steep it's ascending. And when you correct, uh, it allows you then to ascend again. So you see these very distinct uh, drawdowns, if you will. But this last one is quite minor, right? The others, uh, as much as 10%, that uh, September-October sell-off. All the others, 5, 6, 7. And again, median means 7. This is only 3.7% uh, peak decline. So our hunch is that there's more to go. Um, how much more to go? Well, next slide. One thing to do is to draw your trend lines. And so uh, were we simply to get down to the trend line, in effect, since the pandemic low and uh, the low of October, that would take us down about five and a half, six percent peak to trough. And again, we're down only 3.7 as of now peak to trough. Last chart and then a table. This one is uh, another way to draw the lines. It's the same ascending uptrend but then it's the internal trend line on the top. And what's important about this, it's a well-known formation. It's an ascending uh, wedge, if you will. Uh, they often are resolved poorly, which is an exhaustive type thing, and you come out through the bottom. I think that's uh, what we're looking at, at least to the trend line, if not more. Now, last slide. Some marquee names that I think are um, opportunities, meaning the weakness in them is an opportunity. So just a simple uh, table there, these uh, Apple, Amazon, uh, even DocuSign, stocks that are still well off as of today's close from their 52-week high versus, of course, the S&P, it's down only 1.8% from its 52-week high, all-time high. I'd rather take advantage of some of these that are, quote, mature, DocuSign being the exception, tech and or uh, growth names, rather than some of the high flyers that have really gotten walloped.
So I take it, Carter, that your technical take on Kathy Wood's buy of Tesla is that there will be more losses to come in this name. Well, in, in terms of Tesla, remember this, uh, what was it, about a 34% decline, and it's taken place over four weeks. If you remember the September 2nd peak and trough, that was 30 plus percent, took place in four days. This, uh, this sell-off is nowhere near that. But uh, I think that her buying at those lows or wherever she bought, that should put in the low for a while. All right. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth of Cornerstone Macro. Steve Grosso, you like any of those names on Carter's list? I do, but the problem that I'm having with it is that uh, I don't want to get caught up in this buy-the-dip routine in technology. So uh, a name that we mentioned at the top of the show, an Apple, it's RSI. Uh, we know that oversold is a 30 on an RSI. It got down to 35. None of those other names are uh, gauging or reading on an oversold basis. So the only one I would feel comfortable in the tech world buying is Apple, and I am long it. Yeah. Tim? Amazon. Uh, I mean, look at that chart to me for Amazon. You know, this is a quiet Amazon consolidation between 32 and 3,500. And this has been going on for nine months. Um, I, I, we just got reaffirmation. It may be slightly slower growth on AWS, uh, but their e-commerce business at a time, this is a driver for every other retailer, uh, continues to take market share. So uh, I like Amazon here. And, and this is a case where I hold my nose on valuation. I finally came around to that probably four years too late. Um, but certainly uh, have understood that for the last couple, and, and I like the stock here. All right, let's get to the latest development in the GameStop saga. Check out shares right now. They are down by almost 5% in the after hours after announcing a major management change. Josh Lipton joins us with the details. Josh. So, Melissa, we do have some changes in uh, GameStop's C-suite here. They're saying that Jim Bell, executive vice president and CFO, is going to be resigning from his roles on March 26th. Company saying here, thanks, Mr. Bell, for his significant contributions and leadership, including his efforts, they say, over the past year during the COVID-19 pandemic. He was appointed CFO, by the way, in June 2019. Company says it's initiated a search for a permanent CFO. Uh, if a permanent replacement, they say, is not in place, Place at the time of his departure, then it will appoint uh, the current SVP and chief accounting officer as interim CFO. That stock hit an all-time high in late January. It's down about 90% uh, since then, but still up about 220% over the past three months and up about 1,700% since its April low. Melissa, back to you. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. Uh Unbelievable that its high was 10 times where it is trading right now, more than 10 times where it's trading right now. Karen, it's never a good sign when you see a CFO resigning. I'm just curious what, what your take. There's not a lot, granted, we don't know about the situation. Yeah, there is a lot. I mean, the number one question I would have of the CFO is, did you try to do any kind of offering? And if not, why not? Um, and that... Other than that, I don't know. The guy must exhaustion, something. I don't know. It's a crazy ride. And you sit down 90% on no fundamental news whatsoever. So that's pretty extraordinary. But that is that question I really want answered someday. Mm -hmm. It is still up a multiple of where it was pre-GameStop <laughs> frenzy, though, Guy, which is also remarkable in and of itself. Yeah, and if they don't fill the role, maybe they can get the good night kitty guy to come in. He could probably do it extraordinarily well because he seems to know more about GameStop than 99% of the people out there. And I'm with Karen on this one. The number one question is, 
I don't know if we've heard from GameStop. Maybe we have. Maybe I've been in, <laughs> under a rock somewhere. But where were they? I mean, where were they? A lot of other companies did secondaries on huge moves to the upside. Where were they? Um, maybe they couldn't do it, but at least come out and say something. Um, the stock gave you an ample opportunity, my sense is, to get something done. And paralysis by analysis, as they say in our business, is never a good thing. So I'm, I'm sure Mr. Bell is a nice guy, but he should have rung the bell north of 300 as we sit here today. <laughs> Even if they missed the highs and they you know, filed for an offering and they filed at, what, 50, that would still be a tremendous improvement from where the stock was trading in the fall, Steve Grasso, or in December. I mean, it was still a great opportunity to raise more capital than they thought they could raise just a few months ago. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's probably why he's leaving. So all the questions that, that we have, that's, that's probably a, the, the, the crux of it, is, is that somebody tapped him on the shoulder and said, uh, did you go away for a couple of weeks? What, where, why were you asleep at the switch? But I think we all knew on this desk how this was going to end, and the chart reflects that. But yes, I agree. They could have changed a lot by raising some capital. He didn't do it, and I think that's why he's, uh, he's button elbows out the door. Did you catch the gaming reference, falling asleep at the switch, Tim? Yeah. I mean, I I didn't really uh, even know that. The fact fact that the stock's down 5% uh, in the after hours on what would be fundamental is ridiculous. And so, you know, whether you appoint Hello Kitty or or (laughs) Kitty Carlisle into the C suite, it doesn't matter. And and I think you've got a a case here where it's just amazing to me that the stock reacts to fundamentals in the aftermarket when, in fact, this has nothing to do with fundamentals. Coming up. Is a Fed going crypto? Jerome Powell hints at issuing digital dollars. Much more on that straight ahead. But first, we've got two earnings movers for you. Check out shares of Toll and Square on the go after reporting results. Those details when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got our eyes on a couple of earnings movers today. Square and Toll Brothers both on the move after their reports. Diana Olick is standing by on Toll, but we start with Kate Rooney with more details on Square. Kate. Hey, Melissa, Square beating on the top and bottom line for the fourth quarter. But the big stars of that quarter for Square, Cash App and Bitcoin. Let's start with Bitcoin. Square announced that it bought an additional $170 million worth of that cryptocurrency. We don't know exactly when that was purchased and what Square's Return was, but this was in addition to a $50 million announcement that was uh, first disclosed in October. Square now holds about 5% of its cash or cash equivalents in Bitcoin. The analyst call just kicked off. We had CEO Jack Dorsey saying that Bitcoin is the native currency 
of the Internet. CFO Amrita Ahuja described it in a similar way on a media call right after the uh, results came out. She said Bitcoin is the, it's the future of Square. They want to participate, she says, and learn in a disciplined way. I did ask her about the risk and what she sees as far as Bitcoin down big today. Any risk there? We'll see if we get any more color on that on the media call that's going on right now, or the analyst call, I should say. Bitcoin is now making up a much bigger part of Square's business as well. It made up about 5% of gross profits in the fourth quarter. Bitcoin revenue, meanwhile, was $1.6 billion in the quarter. That increased about 10x from a year earlier. The CFO also said that Bitcoin users are more engaged with the app, they're uh, a little bit more active, and they tend to bring in more revenue than those who don't trade Bitcoin. Finally, to cash apps quarter, gross profit was up 162% year over year. It now makes up roughly half of the company's total gross profit. Square did not give any guidance. Also, the stock is down about 5% after hours. Melissa, back to you. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney with the details on Square. We've been talking about that sort of flywheel effect in terms of those people who go onto the platform to buy or sell Bitcoin. Um, Mizuho, that's a big part of their fundamental analysis on the stock. They raised the price target just yesterday to 380. But Karen, how should we think about that Bitcoin purchase. Doing the math, um, it looks like they bought Bitcoin at an average price of $51,236, so a little bit above where it is right now. Does that matter in the end, though? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it matters in the end. I mean, clearly, they're, they're kind of going all in on Bitcoin here. And if you look at their shareholder letter, by the way, on the cover of it, there is what literally looks like a bubble with Bitcoin inside of it. But they're, they're all in here. And um, I mean, I don't think the mark to market really matters. I think that if we really start to see Bitcoin go down a lot more, then maybe it will. Like, you know, if you look at a um, uh, not Tesla, um, like a microstrategy or something. What's that? Microstrategy. Yes. Microstrategy. Yes. That got annihilated because of their huge bet on Bitcoin. But, you know, Cash App was great. That's obviously been a tremendous driver of this business. I think that probably continues, but I think the weight of the success, the valuation of this company, they almost couldn't report anything good enough. The bar was so high. So it's down, I don't know what, four, four, five percent. I still think there's more downside to go if we get that rotation out of the super high flyers. Great company, though. Guy? Whether, well, it's either very good or very bad, but in the short term, in the short term, probably the next few months, I think Square is going to be one of these proxy stocks for Bitcoin. Whether that's justified or not, just that's the way the market's trading. You know, Karen brought up earlier about Tesla's move to the downside. I think a lot of that was on the back of Bitcoin, clearly. And obviously, she just mentioned MicroStrategy. So whether it's justified or not, you're going to see outsides move based on the price of Bitcoin. All that being said, um, there are a lot of people that think this is a 380 to $400 stock, and maybe it does need to take that leg lower first to get there. But wonderful company. Um, I think it's being constrained now by valuations and the volatility in Bitcoin. All right, let's get to Toll Brothers, which is higher on the back of its earnings. Diana Olick's got the details. Diana. Yeah, Melissa, it was a really strong first quarter for Toll Brothers, the luxury home builder across revenue and EPS. But the stunning numbers are really in the contracts, that is, 
59% gain year over year, and the value of those signed contracts up 68%. Now, this is not surprising because the home builders across the board have been doing extremely well due to this pandemic-driven demand for housing. But the sales have been really strong on the higher end, which is, of course, where Toll Brothers lives. Now, we don't have the conference call with analysts until tomorrow morning, but CEO Doug Yearly said in the release, he pointed to favorable demographics continuing, tight supply, low mortgage rates, and, quote, a heightened appreciation for home ownership, especially among our customers. Now, all of that is correct, except the low mortgage rates part. As we've seen in the last week, mortgage rates have really spiked higher at the fastest pace in over a year, up more than a quarter of a percentage report uh, point just in the last week. And that really eats into that demand, especially on the higher end when you're talking about a a potential jumbo loan product for a Toll Brothers home. Not only that, but home prices, we heard from Case Schiller, up over 10% year over year in December. That's for all homes across the board. And that is incredibly hot for home prices. That's the biggest increase annually in over seven years. So when you're talking about higher priced homes, you're talking about potentially higher mortgage rates. You're looking toward the spring market coming up where you've had a lot of demand pulled forward. Well, actually, they did point to slightly higher guidance for the whole year, but slightly lower guidance for Q2 sales, possibly because of so much demand driven uh, pulled forward. And then again, the question of those higher mortgage rates, how is that going to hurt this spring buyer? Melissa? Yeah, just quickly, Diana, though, how should we think about higher uh, rates in the context of who the consumer is. I mean, I agree that it impacts your daily or your monthly payment, but at the same time, maybe higher end buyers are more immune to that quarter of a percent increase. Right, of course they are, but they're also, it's a bigger monthly payment. You're looking at jumbo loans versus conforming loans and if they're gonna have to pay higher for that. So while they don't rely so much on those small moves up, if they start to see a big move up, it could really cut into their demand. It could make them think, well, maybe I don't get a Toll Brothers home, but I get a lower priced home because, you know, that's how much I can afford on the monthly payment. So again, the higher end, not quite as sensitive to mortgage rates, but when you start to see the mortgage rates go higher and you see home prices going so much higher so quickly, nobody wants to catch a falling knife. So I'm not saying it's a huge issue for that high end buyer, but they are going to think twice about it now with both prices and rates going higher. Diana, Thank you, Diana Olick. Uh, Tim, what do you make of Toll or anywhere else in the home building sector? Well, if you look at Toll Brothers, the stocks actually has, has moved decidedly higher this year, almost correlating positively with the move higher in rates. So, you know, there'd be plenty of opportunities to have sold Toll down. And, and I agree, that 790 to 810,000 average selling price, uh, a backlog of up 38% year over year. What worries me most about the home builders is really their gross margin and their profitability. Uh, look at copper prices. Look at look at the move. Copper's within 10 percent of all time highs. Look at lumber prices. Look at these cost inputs. Um, I think it's getting a lot more expensive for these guys to build the house. Um, what they can pass on. Let's see. Uh, the demographics are working in their favor. The, the 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 motivation of the home buyers never seemingly been better. So um, I, I I'm not scared off by higher rates for these guys. I'm scared off by higher input costs. Coming up, check out this chart of Churchill Capital, an almost 40% drop in a single day today. What causes sell-off? Well, more SPAC news. Our next guest has a cautionary tale to tell about one of Wall Street's hottest new trends. That and much more when Fast Money returns. Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. 
like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. The great news is that Luce is a tech company and we're bringing the world's best technology to the market this year here in the U.S., and I think that the valuation is a reflection of our technology. I think that that has been validated and endorsed through the due diligence that Churchill Capital have undertaken. And this is a tech race. And I believe only two companies realize that and recognize that. Tesla recognizes it. That's led to their preeminent position. Lucid recognizes it. We welcome the competition. Bring it on. I- that was Lucid Motors CEO Peter Rawlinson on Squawk on the Street earlier today discussing the electric vehicle maker's plans to go public through a $16 billion SPAC deal with Churchill Capital. Take a look, though, at shares of Churchill falling nearly 40% after that announcement. Our next guest says this type of sell-off is just the tip of the iceberg for investors looking to go long in the SPAC space. Let's bring in Alex Korda, global deals analyst at the Edge Group. Alex, great to have you with us. Um, there Thanks are so many me. people who are willing to just buy a ticker because it is a SPAC. What, you know, boil down the strategy in a nutshell. It's best to own the SPAC when, it's best to sell the SPAC when, on average, of course. Yeah, so on average, and, and thanks for having me, um, we, uh, in our study on SPACs um, as part of our value catalyst um, research, uh, we have found that um, essentially the market euphoria uh, should be taken with a grain of salt and that that narrow window of opportunity is really in the first few months uh, post-combination. Um, and uh, holding really any uh, farther than that um, offers diminishing returns uh, in the short term. Um, and uh, that's, that's the risk. Um, pre-merger, uh, of course, the, uh, the due diligence is required on the management, less than the, the company that's to be merged, because there's, uh, there's less clarity on that front. What do you consider post-merger? Because these days there's all sorts of rumors that this SPAC is going to acquire this company. It's, it's rumored, it's rumored, the SPAC goes up, it goes up, it goes up, and then finally it's announced. That was the case, for instance, with Lucid Motors and Churchill Capital. So when you say, you know, the merger, what is that date? Is it when it's formally announced? When it's done? Um, yeah, so uh, in terms of the, the view that we took for our study, um, the merger date was the date that the um, that the acquisition was actually made, um, not the announcement date. So, in terms of the the you the big the biggest gains then would be just in that window of time after the acquisition was actually made. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Steve, you got so a question? The first, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, in the first three. Yeah, months yeah. I'm so. sorry. So. I, so, Alex, when you look at this, though, it sounds very mechanical, and I understand your point about investing in SPACs. I've, I've done uh, a handful of SPACs, and I've, I've reaped the re- rewards of them. But when you look at a SPAC, I, 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 I concur. I look at the management team first. Then you look at the company that they're buying. But once you look at the company that they're buying, if you believe in that company long term, does all the, the uh, season, I don't want to say seasonality, but the timeline is sort of just uh, mechanical to your point. So you're going to get that 
sell-off, but if it's a great company, then you should get that, in theory, you should get a rally moving forward, no? Well, so our study looked at 155 SPACs over the past five years, uh, between 2015 and 20, um, and uh, we looked at them uh, in terms of whether they made money uh, and outperformed their respective sector indices, uh, whether they made money but underperformed the index, or they lost money entirely. And what we saw is post the combination um, that a wider and wider uh, ratio of uh, SPAC listings um, lost money as time went on, um, even though the potential returns in those that make money does, uh, does increase. It's just harder to catch that, um, the unicorn, if you will, uh, on, uh, on the successful SPACs versus the ones that lose money. Alex, it's Karen. Let me, I might be catching you off guard, but have you studied at all the SPACs that are running out of time and have to come up with some acquisition in short order, how those have done? Um, so that wasn't the focus of this study, uh, but I'm sure that, uh, that there are still angles for us to explore uh, in the future um, you know, for the benefit of, of your viewers and, and their clients. I think uh, you're going to be really busy this year, Alex. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Alex Corda of Edge. <laughs> um, I think that's a great point that Karen makes, Tim, because with a flood to market of all these SPACs, everyone is looking for a target. And if you're running out of time, you might make a bad acquisition. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, it's a great point. It's a great question. And depending on the industry where there's enormous tailwinds and momentum, some of these industries, it's about raising money to go chase a deal. And there's a lot of SPACs chasing big deals. Uh, this is going on in cannabis. I think there's been some really successful ones. Uh, but again, a hot industry um, and the pressure to close a deal, uh, I, I think, is something, especially when you're chasing uh, the same assets as private equity who are loaded with cash right now and an IPO market, which has been rewarding companies coming to market without these other avenues. Uh, but I, I think it's clear to note that SPACs are, are, are a, a vehicle that is you know, not just a byproduct of enormous liquidity. Uh, I think on some levels also they, they can actually be resilient and help investors ride through volatile periods where the public stock markets tend to throw around underlying asset prices in a way that um, some of it's 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 like owning some private equity in a public vehicle. And, and I think we have to be careful to overgeneralize here, but there's no question uh, the SPAC momentum is, is here. Um, and in some sectors, it, it has been the mechanism to get to market. Yeah, and SPACs Vintage 2020, Vintage 2021 guy are probably very different from the SPACs <laughs> Vintage 2017 or whenever um, that EDGE study started. A lot of investors out there are just buying baskets of, of SPACs, as we have learned from Cassius Cuvée. They're scooping up everything because they think within that basket of stuff, there might be the next Tesla or the next Amazon in all of it. Right. As most as many people know, 82 was a great year for Bordeaux, but there were some years that were not so good. So, you know, 2020, we may look back and say it's, it's akin to the 82 Bordeaux. 2021, you got A-Rod, who I happen to love, by the way. He had a great 9 campaign for the Yankees, as Tim uh, remembers. I'm sure I know Steve does. But the fact that he's, you know, getting involved in SPACs, it really has to make it scratch your head a bit. Again, this is all at the feet of just money flying around and supply and demand. They're Think about all the SPACs out there now looking for targets. There are not as many targets. There are a lot of SPACs. By definition, that's going to inflate prices. At a certain point, that's going to be problematic. By the way, 
Uh, ARS, Mel, I know you're a big fan. I am as well. The great Andrew Ross Sorkin has done very thoughtful work on this. And mm -hmm. I encourage our viewers and listeners to read some of the things that he's put out. I agree, particularly on CCIV and, and Lucid. Some interesting thoughts. Coming up, Bitcoin continuing its decline already down 16%. To start the week, we'll break down the action with our own Bitcoin baller next. Plus, NVIDIA has been trending lower in the past few weeks, but is there more pain ahead for the chip maker? We'll tell you how the options market is playing it when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin plunging nearly 14% in today's session, dropping below the 50,000 mark. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell waded into the crypto discussion during his testimony on Capitol Hill today. Take a listen. We are the world's reserve currency, uh, and we have a responsibility to get this right. We don't need to be the first. We, we need to get it right. And so it, it does hold out uh, the prospect of, of the things that you mentioned, very positive. It could, it could help with financial inclusion as well. At the same time, you want to avoid creating um, things that might be destabilizing or that might draw funds away from the banking system. We, we have a banking system. So what would a digital dollar mean for Bitcoin in the broader crypto space? Let's bring in our very own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly. Brian. Good to hear from you. Um, I kind of thought that dollars were already sort of digital. I mean, I can send you money via Venmo or PayPal or Zelle right. or whatever. I mean, isn't that the case right now? Yeah. I mean, we're, we pretty much already have a digital do dollar already. I mean, how many people, you know, if you have kids, you know that they never, ever use cash. Um, everything is going to electronic payments. So, you know, I, I don't think there's, there's really that big of a deal about a digital dollar. Um, you know, the, on the other hand, I think it would be just fantastic for Bitcoin because what you do know is that once the Fed has a digital wallet and they can put more money in there, they will continue to print that money. And that is just the exact opposite value proposition from Bitcoin. Oh, so you think that if the Fed actually goes ahead with the digital dollar, that would mean that that uh, they would print more money it, it, because it's just that much easier? Yeah, I think there, exactly. There's two things. I mean, instead of mailing out stimulus checks, they just simply credit your wallet with more money. Alternatively, if they wanted to get you to spend that money, they put $1,400 in there. And if you don't spend it within a week, they take 100 bucks out. And that gets you to create, you know, that gets inflation creating velocity, all of those type of things. Again, I think it would be really good for Bitcoin. BKH, Tim, uh, first-time caller, long-time fan. And my question to you is the volatility around Bitcoin over the last few days, but maybe even the last six weeks, but really the move down. Within the community of Bitcoin traders, isn't this type of a move almost perversely seen as positive? Um, and, and doesn't it almost embolden, uh, again, the core here? Because there's been so many of these runs um, where people have said the sky is falling and they've been followed ultimately by higher highs. Talk about that dynamic emotionally in the sector. Yeah, so it, that's really a, a great point, Tim, and love your work on the show here. Um, I'll tell you Thank what, you. You know, <laughs> if you look back at the 2017 bull market, um, you had multiple pullbacks of 30%. Um, so this is not unusual for Bitcoin. It sounds unusual, um, you know, when in the context of stocks. Uh, but for Bitcoin, this is a very natural part of what the bull market is like. And people who have held or hodled, as they call it in, in the Bitcoin world, um, through multiple cycles, understand that you know, ultimately here you want to buy the dip. 
Um, I think we're just getting started with square buying and MicroStrategy and other S&P 500, and then as well as the institutionalization is get, just getting started. So I think we're in the first couple innings of this bull market cycle. All right. BK, thanks for phoning in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brian Kelly, it is almost, uh, it is only Tuesday, though, and we're down, what, so far this week. Um, Guy Dami, I thought it was an interesting notion that the Fed, if it had a, a, a wallet, if you had a wallet that the Fed somehow created, that it can wire you money and take away that money if you don't spend it. it used to be the opposite when it's I was a brilliant idea up. from Bitcoin. <laughs> Listen, I mean, if they go down that road, which who knows at this point what they're willing to do to get the desired result, but... You know, you might as well, in, instead of the flamethrower they're putting to the U.S. dollar now, I mean, they might as well just, you know, nuke the entire thing because the dollar is going to get crushed on the back of that. It's just, you know, you know I'm no fan of the Federal Reserve, central banks, Jerome Powell, the whole gang. But if, if they go down that road, I think the Bitcoin crew, and BK just spoke to it, I think they're licking their collective chops because that would be proof positive that Bitcoin's got it right and all these central banks have it wrong. So good for BK for pointing that out, by the way. Coming up, how options traders are getting ready for NVIDIA earnings out tomorrow. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast. Another big earnings report on deck. NVIDIA dropping ahead of its results after the bell tomorrow. Bonowin Eisen joins us with how the options traders are feeling about it. Bonowin. Thanks, Mel. So, yeah, hopping right into NVIDIA. You can see the calls outpaced puts today about two times to one. And then looking at the implied move from the options. Options are implying about a 6.5% move between now and Friday X3 compared to about a 2.5% move on the back of earnings over the last four quarters. And the trade that really jumped off the tape for me and I thought was a bit crafty, about 1,000 of the February 26th, so this Friday expiry, 560,600 call spreads were bought for just under $10, setting you up for a nice four to one payout. Now, what I was, thought was very interesting about the trade was that earlier in the session, we had that sell-off. These options were bought in there, allowing you to define your risk, quote unquote, catch the falling knives, but in a risk-defined way. Thought that was very interesting. All right, BI Spreaker, thank you for more options action. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trades. Go around the horn, Tim. So here's a consolidation at the 100-day. I, I definitely buy. It's Brazil. The EWZ is poised to move higher with commodity prices. Karen. Final trade is the one that I did today, which is by FedEx right here. I love the valuation. Steve. This is the year of GE. It's up 20% in February. I'm looking for another 20% quickly. Guy Dami. To tell the truth, Mel, see, I know you don't know what that means, <laughs> but the Kitty Carlisle fans out there do. Lockheed yeah. Martin defense yeah. stocks quietly going <laughs> higher. All 25 of them. Thanks for watching Fast. Don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 